You're listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, brought to you by the Raven Creek Social Club, where we talk about faith and other oddities. For questions, comments, or to be part of the conversation, join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find us at Raven Creek SC. Now for your hosts, Emily Dixon and Nathan Underwood. Hey everyone, welcome back to Faith and Other Oddities, the show where Emily and I read the Bible, talk about it, and try to figure out what some of it means. Uh, so last last week was uh, cherubs. Cherubs, yeah, I was thinking cherubim. I guess would be the correct. Yeah, anytime you see a word uh, related to the Bible that ends with that M or Em, it's pronounced both ways. It kind of just depends on who your teacher was. Um, sure. The uh, M is. There's more than one. It's the plural form. So, yeah. So anytime you see cherubim, we're talking about multiples. When we're talking about cherub, you know, we're talking singular because that is a Hebrew word. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I was uh, actually when you're doing your intro, I'm thinking, and we offer unsolicited opinions about things you didn't think needed comment Need- on. <laughs> yeah. Unsolicited opinions about things that you didn't know needed opinion. <laughs> we got plenty of them. Uh, so yeah, so we were talking about the cherubim, we were talking about how, uh, just a little bit of the history of them and how they were common to the ancient Near East, how this was not an image that was reserved just for the, um, the Israelites or the temple and how they differed from the tabernacle to the temple. And then we find out that they are overlaid in gold and we kind of left there and then we're going to talk about more of the building itself where they were mm-hmm. located so we're going to get into that and we're going to see how many notes i have because it's been a crazy week around here too so you know i keep thinking i go we shouldn't apologize for our life being crazy so much it should just be a given at this point I mean, it's just the way things go so but um we're picking up first kings chapter six um verse 29 it says, and all around the walls of the house, he carved figures of cherubim and palm trees and open flowers in the inner and outer rooms. So the, these designs, they're just, they're strictly ornament, ornamental. Um, they were chosen, though, for a very specific reason. And the, the reason is they're supposed to remind you of the Garden of Eden. We have trees, we have flowers, we have the cherubim. And when you think back to the story of the Garden of Eden, where you've got trees, where there's fruit, you've got the cherubim, you've got the, you know, we think of this lush, lavish garden that's beautiful. So flowers are automatically implied. Uh, Mm -hmm. And you've got to remember that this is sacred space, you know, and the garden was the original piece of sacred space. It's the original temple created by God. And I think we we overlooked that. I know that that was not a concept I learned until I was an adult and out of seminary, the idea that Eden was a temple. Uh, And I highly um, recommend that you read um, Walton. Walton, John Walton. I had John Walter, Walter Scott. Uh, John Scott, John Stott. I mean, all these names that didn't work. So John, John Walsh, Joe Walsh, John <laughs> <Yeah>. Henley. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, this all the names that didn't belong. So John Walton, he does a really good job of describing how this this works and why it is sacred space. Now, the thing about sacred space 
no matter what what form we're talking about or um the the parameters as far as like you know where it was physically and the dimensions and what it looked like it it always has one common element and that element is this is where god meets with humanity this is where god actually intersects with our lives and and makes himself known that becomes sacred space so obviously the garden of eden has to be sacred space because that's where god walked and talked and you know, all of these things interacted with Adam and Eve at a very personal, very intimate level. Then, you know, you get to fast forward to the burning bush where, you know, Moses actually has this encounter uh, with God. And what does God tell him? You take off your ground because you're on sacred ground. You're in sacred space to use a synonym there. And what's really interesting about this whole idea of sacred space is if you look at the, the binding of Isaac, one of the foundational stories of Judaism. And I really suggest that people study that story from as many different sources and from many as many different angles as they possibly can, because that story has so many little bits and pieces that make the rest of the Bible make sense. And it really begins with that, that foundational story there in, in Genesis. But that's on Mount Moriah. That is... Um, another instant of sacred space, because this is where, again, God shows up. And the Jewish tradition is that the temple is built on that same piece of property, that this is the same spot where Abraham was going to offer Isaac. It's also believed to be the same spot where uh, Jacob wrestled with the angel, that these places where God appeared, very interesting, you know, um, profound experience with humanity. That's what I was trying to think. These are, these are stories that stand out in the Bible because of the level of intimacy, which God appears. Mm -hmm. And so I thought you had more to say there. So. Nope. Sorry. I, uh, I have very little to go on right now. (laughs) Just waiting, waiting to see where the conversation takes us. Okay. Well, yeah, but, and I don't know whether or not I've seen arguments that it couldn't possibly be the same locations for all these events. And I've seen arguments that absolutely is, it doesn't matter. The, the The things that happened in these locations were of the same nature. They have the same kind of significance in the fact that God showed up. And so when we look at the temple, we look at the garden, we look at um, the burning bush, we look at the binding of Isaac, we see this. But then, you know, New Testament, this is where we, we start to build our New Testament theology where God shows up for the individual. God shows up within the individual, through the individual. And so the person becomes sacred space. We're the temple of God. We, we now, the Holy Spirit resides within us. And so the, we are sacred space, not just someplace on a map. And so this is where a lot of the ideas about, um, you know, showing our allegiance to the kingdom of God through loving kindness, because it's mm. a loving and kind God who acts through us. All of this plays together, and you, you can see if you begin to look at this, you know, just the idea of temple throughout um, Scripture, you can see how important it is and how central it is to, um, to this idea that God wants to be with creation. And so that's what the temple is to remind you of, that originally the, the, the purpose of, of the earth was to provide a place where humanity could thrive and God could meet with his creation. And they could have this ongoing, sustained relationship 
humans were the one who broke that. We're the ones who, who made that impossible, at least on the terms that it was in the garden. So, uh, and a real quick note, I don't even know if I should open this can of words because it's kind of like winding you up and setting you off. Uh, one of the things that has come out of that teaching is this idea of total depravity, that when we broke that relationship, now we're so evil, we're so sinful that we have destroyed anything good has, God has ever put in us. So we don't deserve sacred space. Okay. The structure and creation of the temple itself denies that. God, if we didn't deserve any kind of contact with God, why would he make provision for it even before the death of Christ? Oh, well, it's, you know, it's what we were told in the, in Sunday school, right? It, that, you know, the, they had the access just because they were looking forward to Jesus coming. That's, yeah. everyone I, was just sitting around waiting for Christianity. <laughs> right. Well, and, you know, and the, there's a certain element of truth in that. They were looking for the Messiah. They were looking for this final kingdom, this expression of God in a new way, in a very political way. But that doesn't mean that they felt like they had something, you know, not worthy of praise or that wasn't a great, great gift of grace to them. Um, they understood how significant it was that God would choose to manifest himself. And this is what we're going to find as we get into, later into the story. God chooses to manifest himself in ways that can be perceived with the senses and not just accepted on faith there in the temple. So, you know, the fact that God would allow that, and, you know, I love uh, Carmen Iams' book um, about bearing God's image by Sinai is still still significant. It is so good at at reminding us that God really does see us still as his creation and still bearing his image. Mm -hmm. And yeah, and I know you were trying to bait me into into going on a, a tirade about Calvinism. I just I don't have the energy today. Um, <laughs> trying to make my notes stretch. Well, uh, I I get that. I, I mean, I mean, we can talk about it. I don't know. Maybe maybe I maybe I just need more coffee. But I, I've been a uh, it, it's been a long week. I, I've had sick kid and things like that. So it's yeah, that'll that'll zap you in a heartbeat. But yeah. It, it, I do think one of the things that I do want to point out is, um, yes, humanity was, was damaged in the fall. Uh, that, that's unmistakable. That's undeniable. We were damaged in the, small, in the fall. It doesn't mean we don't still bear the hallmarks of the greatest artist that ever existed and ever will exist. Right. Uh, one of my favorite examples of this, and we all know the Venus de Milo. We, we know the, you know she's the woman with her arms broken off, her head's you know, partly broken. And, you know, there's just, there's so many images due to the age and the way this image was not cared for for a long time. Yet, we all know the image. We all know, we can immediately recognize the, the quality of the artistry that went into that. Uh, we aren't mm-hmm. saying she's not damaged. We're still saying that she is a valuable piece of art for what she does still retain, even in her damaged form. And yeah, so, I mean, d- and damaged and, and beautiful and valued enough to uh, personify it, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> apparently. <Yeah. laughs> so, uh, but no, that's actually, I mean, a good point because there was, um, there was actually a, a, an exhibit here in Norman that, uh, surprisingly, uh, that they came to our, our 
I mean, the, the, the Norman Art Museum is great. I'm not trying to mm-hmm. downplay it. But for a town this size, it's, it's really good. But it's also kind of a smaller museum. But we had, uh, there was actually a, an exhibit of some of the Roman uh, statues. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and a lot of those were um, broken and chipped and, uh, you know, but the, you could still see the, the level of detail and craftsmanship in them was incredible. And um, that's and, actually it, it, well, and and uh, go ahead with your thing. I, oh, I, I was going to say, actually, total depravity later. Okay, one one of the really cool, interesting things. One of the criteria uh, amongst in some circles, and of course, art is something that's highly debated. You know, what is it, and how do you define what art is? Blah blah blah. Uh, in some circles, some of the criteria of what is art is: can it be damaged and still be beautiful, engaging, not necessarily beautiful, but still retain enough of its in original imagery to be compelling. And so that's how you, you kind of qualify how good the art piece is and whether it is art or kitsch. Because, I mean, you chip a figurine in your house, unless it has some kind of sentimental value, you toss it. You know, you, it, if it's just kitsch, it's only useful and functional when it's whole, when it's complete. And so it doesn't have that same, same kind of um, weight and value. I mean, if I scratch a Picasso, I'm not going to throw it out in the garbage. If I, you know, so whereas if it's just something I doodled, maybe, probably. So anyhow, you were thin- saying something. Oh, I just, the, the whole, the total depravity thing. I, I mean, we really have, we, one of the best um, proofs I can think of and again, I'm going to get accused of I don't understand Calvinism or whatever. Um, but it's um, one of the best proofs for that is, is, to me, is the flood narrative. You, you kind of see what happens when God's done with the project. <laughs> I mean, I hadn't or, or when it gets it. so far out of hand. I mean, it, it's, he, he used the flood to get rid of the parts of humanity that had become totally depraved. And yes, he saved a remnant, so you can't say humanity as a whole is not worth saving and not worth his time. But, I mean, it's a pretty um, pretty definitive case there as far as I'm concerned. Huh. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that one. Because I'm thinking you know, Noah was perfect in all his, gener- in all the genera- in his generation, sorry. Uh, which is the same word that we use for sacrifice, uh, the, the condition of the sacrificial calves and lambs and stuff. They have to be perfect. Mm-hmm. Um, so, hmm. Okay, I'm gonna play with that one because that's interesting. So, but yeah, I just, I, I, I really, I, I just think that one of the things we need to look to is the fact that even in our broken, damaged state, God is still saying, "Hey, you still have something of value to be redeemed. You, you aren't just trash on the garbage heap that I happen to be, you know, collecting because I can't get anything better. It's like, no, you still retain this imagery of, of the God who created you." And so, uh, and, you know, and we could take that too far and we can get inflated and we can, uh, with our ego and think, oh, look how great I am because I'm in the image of God. But that, again, that goes back to the tension we're always talking about, that we have to recognize there is damage, but we still have to cling to the fact that God is our father and he is our creator. And that in and of itself gives us value. Mm. And if we think that one human being's destructive act is more powerful than God's creative act, we're putting the emphasis on the wrong person. 
Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I refuse, refuse to give Adam that much credit. So anyway, back to, to uh, uh, First Kings, what we find here is not only do we have this imagery that points us back to Eden, we also have this imagery of, um, well, the, we were talking about the flowers and the trees and stuff, the gold. The gold itself uh, reminds us of, again, of Eden, because if you go back and read that, and I've got it, we're going to talk about it here in a minute. Um, it's one of the elements found in the land surrounding Eden. It, it's one of the, the elements that's mentioned specifically. And uh, there are four elements that were, were uh, named in Genesis. So verse uh, 31, it says, The entrance of the inner sanctuary, he made the doors of olive wood, the lentil and the doorpost were five-sided. Now, five's an interesting number. And I don't want to get too in-depth with, okay, oh, what does this symbol mean? And what does that symbol mean? Um, there is some symbolism here. I, I'm not going to deny that. But I think sometimes we can reach too far and just forget sometimes it is a building. So if it wasn't overtly created to be a symbol, like an image, like a painting or a drawing of a, of a palm tree or a cherubim, you know, we have to be careful. But five is an interesting number because um, traditionally five is means service. That, that's what it represents. So the temple was to be used in service of God and man so that they can meet. But we also, the other number that's going on here is four because four is the number of the earth. You've got the four seasons, the four directions, the four corners of the earth, the, the four winds of the earth. That's Revelation 7, 1. They're held back by four angels. Uh, so everything is, is about the earth typically is represented by that number four. So when you add five, this is a reminder, a visual cue. You're you're moving into that kind of fifth dimension. Now you're not fifth dimension, but that next level of space or, or being something beyond this physical world. It, it's in addition to the world. And so there there are these little symbols that people would pick up on. And you know, and sometimes symbols are meant to be in your face, slap you upside the head. And sometimes symbols are supposed to just kind of gently ease you into a new thought pattern. And so I don't know, um, you know, how significant this is, but that is just one thought I had uh, about the fact that we do have the entrance is surrounded by this number five and how many people would actually stop to look at it. I don't know. So I like playing with ideas like this and I'm not going to say they're definitive when I can't say they're definitive. You know, if I can't point to a scripture verse that that explains it the way I'm seeing it, I'm not going to tell you that's exactly what it has to mean. Mm -hmm. I just want to throw it out there and say, Hey, this is a possibility. Um, And it it is the kind of symbolism that artists will use. We'll actually find similar symbolisms when we get to medieval uh, cathedrals and chapels and stuff that the artist would start to bring in these kinds of thought processes of how, how do the number of items on display impact the way we think about stuff? Because we, we as human beings do associate certain numbers just automatic because of cultural contact with certain things. I mean, I can say Friday the 13th, and because it's a 13, you're immediately going to go bad luck. If I say lucky number seven, you know, it's, it's all there in our heads. So verse 32, we have more gold. It's covering everything. It's everywhere. Uh, verse 33, it says, so he made for the entrance to the nave doorpost of olive wood in the form of a square 
verse 34, and the two doors of cypress wood, the two leaves of the one door were folding and two leaves of the other door were folding. So it, it seems to be um, a door that was, you could, you know, fold in half. There was kind of a bifold door there that allowed for a larger entry point into the temple and not to take it so much forum. Now, Cyprus is interesting as one of the um, elements of the temple. Isaiah says that the thorn bush would be replaced by the cypress tree whenever the earth is renewed. So to have cypress here is kind of that reminder that this is, there's going to be renewal. There's going to be a reversal of that curse on Adam where that's where the thorns came into existence. So even this is a reminder that you should be looking back to Eden once again when you're thinking about the temple. Mm. And now, this is not in, um, I, I want to acknowledge that the cypress used in Israel is completely different than the cypress I'm getting ready to talk about, but I did find this to be very fascinating. And there's a study, a very reputable study, it's been published in scientific magazines, that Japanese cypress, which is also used in their temples, produces a measurable calming effect when it's touched. So you have to wonder if that even comes into play here. I, there, obviously, you know, I couldn't find anything about the, the temple or the cypress trees in Israel producing the same kind of effect, or I would have totally cited that. But you have to kind of wonder, is there any kind of correlation? And somebody needs to do that study for me, because now I'm curious. <laughs> and we do know that, you know, being surrounded by wood, uh, natural objects actually does have a... Um, a very calming effect on people. Of course, in that day and age, you wouldn't have had to have gone to the temple to find it because you aren't going to be in rooms that have sheetrock and paint and you know artificial lighting. Uh, everything you live in is going to be some kind of configuration of a natural material that was easily accessible. So verse 35, um, we have this reoccurring theme again of the palm trees, the flowers, the cherubim and gold. All of this is listed once again as being part mm -hmm. of the temple. Uh, you, you don't, you aren't supposed to miss this point. Verse 36, he built an inner court with the courses of cut stone and one course of cedar uh, beams. So in, this is, was really interesting when I was looking this up to find out, you know, inner court with three courses of cut stones and, uh, one course of cedar beams, and they were talking about, I've found different layouts of the temple uh, explaining exactly what this, this court would look like. But as I got to digging deeper, what I was finding were I found drawings that were Herod's court, the second temple, the one, uh, the, the temple that Jesus would have been at. Mm -hmm. And they're saying that Solomon's court or temple would have been constructed in almost the exact fashion that, that because it's an inspired idea, it would have been consistent. There would have been this continuity between one to the other. Now we do know that um, this was not true because when the people returned from exile and they witnessed the, the second temple being built, they cried. Those who saw, had seen what the first temple looked like and who witnessed the second temple, they, they knew there was a world of difference between the two. And so uh, now there were renovations done between that time and when Jesus was there and what have you. Okay, but the reason why this is important is because when you read descriptions of Solomon's court, it doesn't line up. And 
one of the biggest points where it doesn't line up is in Herod's court, there were uh, two courts. There was the court of the priest, and that was the area that surrounded the sanctuary. And then there's a small band uh, before the courtyard in front of the sanctuary, and that was the court of women. Solomon's court does not have a court of women. As a matter of fact, the Mishnah said that in Solomon's temple, there's no distinguish, there's no distinction between the sexes. That women could go anywhere the men went, you know, with the exception of the priests when they did their official service. But no regular guy was allowed to go everywhere the priest was allowed to go. So mm-hmm. it's really well, it, interesting. Uh, yeah, and what, what's really funny is the, you know, in. I, I can already hear the fundamentalists trying to interpret that. Well, see how, you know, the Herod came in and rebuilt it and messed things up by not not making sure that women were in, you know, in their place, letting them in the temple. You know, I can I can hear it in my head. These these There's gonna be some argument that's offered. And I'm just like I'm like, but that's not the case. <laughs> Right. Well, in the Torah, if you read all of the Torah and you read all of the description, there's absolutely no law that forbids a woman from going into any part of the temple. Right. You know, it, it's just, it's not there. And you know, unless we're talking like the Holy of Holies, but again, regular people weren't allowed, the priests weren't allowed. So, I mean, there's certain distinctions based on the function of priesthood. Yeah. The only thing, not- the only thing you might find is, is just if there was any, you know, during menstrual impurity. Right. Right. Which again, ceremonially impure. That's not. Not that, sin. That's not. That's not sinful, right? Yeah, and I, I don't think we can, we can repeat that often. Uh, being unclean or being impure is not necessarily a sign of being sinful, mm-hmm. and so uh, some of the scholars. I mean, because because can... really, I mean, sorry. If if you really look at it, the the ceremonially ceremonially uh, unclean versus sinfully versus being in sin. I mean, understanding that is is really important cuz what's God's first command? Be fruitful and multiply. Right. Well, if you read on into the Torah, there's, you know, there's the process there's requires. Saying, they're saying if if you have sex, then you're unclean until the next day after you wash. Um, but you're unclean after you give birth. Right. And so so really the only way for God to fill, for God to intend for humanity to fulfill that first command without sinning, if you look at it as this means you're sinful, mm-hmm. the technology for that is just now coming into play. <laughs> um, so, you know, I don't think that's what God had in mind. <laughs> you know, yes. um, you're not going to get new people without some time being ceremonially unclean. Um, yeah, I, I mean, that's probably the most delicate way to put it. Um, yeah. oh, I, well, and that's the thing. We, we have to look at how we're using the terms and we need to make sure we're using the terms as close to what the original use was as possible. Mm-hmm. But within the temple itself, uh, you know, we can, there, we don't know exactly when this idea of the court of women came into play, when that was added to the temple as proper and good, uh, the best guess is that I read, and uh, really it was the only guess, but it makes sense to me, is that it was probably a rabbinic ruling uh, that was put in place sometime during the Second Temple. 
Um, and it was probably done in response to the sexual rituals and rites that were being practiced in other temples to say, mm -hmm. hey, look, we're, we're a little bit more holy than the rest of you. We don't, we don't even, we don't have sex at our temple, for one thing. We don't have temple prostitutes. And we're so holy, we're even keeping the sexes separated so that people can't even accuse us of it, which is something very rabbinic to do. Um, mm -hmm. You know, and, you know, we can talk about whether that addition to the law was correct or not. I, I probably not, uh, but you can kind of understand it. And so uh, I just found that to be very interesting that there wouldn't be a separation when we have heard our whole lives about how important this separation was and maintaining the order of worship and mm -hmm. you know it, it it's really good for me to know that god didn't say oh well only men can come close to my uh, come close to my presence and and you know when, when you think about it women had to offer sacrifices uh at various points of time due to their physical you know body and the demands of it and being able to offer those sacrifices would have required them going to the priest. So um, anyway, to find that, by the way, you have to go to like Google page 58. Don't, don't look for Google page two and three because you aren't going to find that information. You, you've got to dig deeper. And it's interesting to me that this is the kind of stuff, this should be headlining stuff. This should mm -hmm. be information that we should all be putting out there. Instead, it gets buried, and it gets buried because pe not enough people are clicking on it. So, um, you know, Google is a popularity contest. Let's just be clear about that. So, um, <laughs> verse 37. In the fourth year, the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid in the month of Sev, and in the eleventh year of the month, in the eleventh year in the month of Bull, is the which is the eighth month, the house is finished in all its parts. And according to all its specifications, he was seven years in building it. Okay, so we have the basic facts from verse one of this chapter repeated in verse 37. And it sets this chapter off as a complete um, unit within the text. So you've got the beginning and the end. You're supposed to read this as one, this, uh, the totality of what they're trying to uh, explain here. So anytime you have sections in the Bible that have this repetition, you need to really be thinking about why is it considered a complete unit. Mm -hmm. And then the final verse tells us that the project takes seven years and seven months. Okay. So the building begins in Zev. That's the, um, the month of splendor, of brilliance. This is when the trees begin to blossom. It's the time before the rainy season. But then bull is the end of the harvest season. And this is um, when whatever's left in the field is beginning to weather. It's when the fodder for the livestock better be at least in the process of being prepared when the heavy rains do begin to fall. And so you almost have this, this, um, this cycle being presented of seed time to harvest uh, within the, the building of the, of the temple itself. And it's kind of an interesting, um, an interesting image, but it's even more interesting when you realize that it's in preparation for winter, that, that it's happening at this time of preparation for winter, especially when you know what happens in the rest of the book. So that this really great, almost time of a spiritual high is going to be followed by this time of almost spiritual barrenness within the, within the land itself. So 
something to keep in mind because we're going to move into some dark times in Israel. Um, say within the land itself? Yeah. Okay. I misunderstood yeah, well, that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Go ahead. I, yeah, the, I, I was trying to figure out what you were talking about. Go like, the, yeah, the people aren't going to have, because the temple's going to be destroyed. And so it's almost like they have to spiritually charge up before God totally takes it out of the equation. And so, um, there, because the, the temple really became the, the central hallmark in this, um, this way of identifying who Israel was and defining who they were as a nation. And it was the ability to look back and remember those times that, that drew the people back into the land. So there, there's some, a really kind of interesting psychological phenomenon that's going on here where the temple and the memory of the temple, even if it was a, an inherited memory because you didn't see it yourself, but your parents or grandparents did, it, it brought people, it, it was the inspiration, it was the motivation for saying, hey, I need to reclaim this. So mm. um, I think we, you know, I, I think sometimes we forget how really awesome it is that Judaism is even still, it's managed to survive. It, it mm -hmm. really, I mean, even before the time of Christ, the fact that it survived through Egypt and it survived through Babylon and it survived through the Roman occupation, it's just mind-blowing. And then when we come to, to modern day, the fact that we have Jews all around the world who still claim this heritage and not just a, a genetic heritage, but also a spiritual heritage, a right or wrong, it, it's still, it's amazing. It, it's amazing because mm -hmm. um, honestly, I, I, it doesn't make sense that they managed to, to cling to this for so long. So that's kind of chapter six. So we got the basic foundation, uh, the basic building of the temple has been completed. This is not the interior. This is not. I mean, yeah, we got some some decorating going on, but the, and I just I want to I want to clarify. You're not okay. saying that in like an anti-Semitic no way. No, you're you're saying that in a way that's that's like yes, there's debate on how Christianity and Judaism should interact. Thank you. And and also, um, it's not like oh, it doesn't make sense, and they're so stupid. You're saying no. like on in the course of history, there's not like a uh, you're you're not going to have a conventional um, sociological reason uh, for the religion to have survived as long and as as thrivingly as it did. Yes, um, yes. But you're looking at it from an academic standpoint. Right. I wanted to clarify that no, you're not no. you're not going off on the deep end. Um, <laughs> I, I really hope that anybody who listens to us with any kind of regularity would know that I I, I value what we get from Judaism and what we can learn through their scholars. And, and, uh, mm -hmm. you know, it, it, it's just, to me, it, it maybe I should say it's incredible that they, that they managed to survive as an intact functioning group with this, this it, yeah, his, with, with as, with as much oppression and with as much of, of the diaspora, how long that's going. Uh, you know, it it really there's there's a lot to it, and whenever well, yeah. you look at it from from the uh, perspective of history, it it really is incredible. Yeah, yeah, because I mean, anti-Semitism is is real, um, just not with me. Uh, and so it'd be a lot easier just to abandon this this belief system that seems to have failed them. If you just want to be like very um, factual, cut and dry, 
mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And so, and when I say, you know, for right or wrong, you know, the fact that that Jesus isn't acknowledged as the Messiah that that that's a concerning, that's a troubling point within Judaism. And but at the same time, well, it is for Christians. For it's Christians, not for them. Not for them. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, it, it's like it still shows you the power that was kind of imparted to them as a people that God is just still, uh, it's still maintained. And this is, this is a very esoteric conversation that we've gotten into because it's, these are the kinds of things I like to think about, but I want to find better words before I go into actual conversations. Yeah. Well, (laughs) which I felt like we needed to clarify it. I'm like, man, that, that could be really misconstrued. And I know that's not, I know that's not what you meant. And I'm pretty sure most of our (laughs) listeners would know that that's not what you meant. Yeah. um, Yeah. So I just want to make sure, you know, I I try to, we try to be precise about these kinds of things. Well, and that's, well, see, I'm tucked away in the woods and the only people I talk to are, is my redneck husband, our mother and our sister. And so uh, where you're actually out with the public every day and you have to be aware of these things. So (laughs) I I think that kind of impacts how we we view these things. I'm going to have to become a little bit more polished, I guess. But anyway, uh, but we've got this this shift in chapter seven. That's where we're moving into chapter seven, and it's it's really kind of an abrupt shift. Uh, there there's like no real good lead in because um, we go from reading about the splendor and all of this gold and the this massive undertaking that took seven years for building the temple, and then we go to this description of Solomon's palace, and we're given these these details and dimensions that really demonstrate the extravagance of Solomon's home and even hints as to what it costs. And we're also told that he's going to build a, a, a palace for uh, Pharaoh's daughter. Uh, there's a couple of other extra things that go into the ta- to his palace. And then after we get through all of this kind of stuff about Solomon and his home life and what he has going on, then we return back to the temple and its fur- um, furnishings, which is kind of this really odd kind of break in the narrative because you would think that the sensible thing to do would be to start your account of the temple, walk all the way through what was involved in building the temple and furnishing it correctly, and then we can talk about Solomon. So when you have these kinds of things going on, because I mean, the temple account doesn't end till chapter nine and we're here. We are chapter six and just going into chapter seven. And we're still talking about the uh, the temple in chapter nine. You want to ask what's going on here? Why, why is this thing, you know, this, this completely almost unrelated event plopped in the middle of what should be, at least in my mind, a continuous uh, description. So um, the other question we could ask is, why include it at all? Because Chronicles never talks about Solomon's palace. Uh, he he doesn't, it, it just doesn't even bring it up. They aren't worried about Solomon's house. They, they want to talk about God's house. Uh, so Chronicles doesn't even think it's important enough to mention. But I think one of the things, again, we have to remember Samuel and the book of Kings, again, one book in, originally, was written to answer the question of how did we get into this mess? And Chronicles was written to, to explain why in the world they would return to Israel. So there's two different things. I mean, and Solomon isn't their motivating factor for coming back to Israel. The, the temple and what he accomplished 
and the fact that God blessed these endeavors, absolutely. But Solomon, on a personal level, he's a guy to be upheld and thought of very highly, but ultimately he's not an, a compelling enough reason. It's got to be about God and God's provision for the nation. And mm-hmm. so um, because of the, these differences in the way that the books are written, you know, Samuel and Kings, they're never going to miss an opportunity. The writer's never going to miss an opportunity to tell you how someone messed up. You know, they did that with David. (laughs) I mean, that's just the way they wrote it. So by putting this, this chapter six, and you've got that kind of encapsulated, you know, unit within the text, and it tells us, you know, exactly how long very precisely Solomon spent building the temple. You know, they don't want you to miss it. They repeat the beginning date at the end of the chapter so you don't miss it. And then the opening verse of chapter 7 tells us that Solomon spends 13 years building his own house. So now they're forcing you to ask a question. Who's really the most important person in Solomon's mind? Is it the one who house got seven years or is it the one whose house gets 13 years almost twice the number twice the amount of time spent on his own dwelling versus god's dwelling now um you know and that's not something you can just immediately answer because i i love rashi and how he deals with it because rashi if he ever thinks you're a good guy then you can do no wrong Mm -hmm. and if you if he doesn't like you, then you can do nothing right. So he liked Solomon. And he said, you know, Solomon was so dedicated and so driven to get this done that this is the reason why the temple only took seven years was because, I mean, he was just pouring everything into it and he was making it happen as quickly as possible. Where his house, he could kind of let go. He didn't have to be as on it. Um, so, you know, there's a couple of different ways of reading it and we, we need to acknowledge that. And I like people who point out different ways of reading it because it helps me recognize my own bias. Mm. And, and I do, I come to the scripture with bias. I, I have that and everybody needs to recognize that everyone has one. They have a bias and they need to be paying attention for it. So this is the reason why we read contradictory materials. We listen to teachers we don't necessarily agree with. We, you know, we go into books with an open mind or we try to see where we have these preconceived notions. And, you know, the writer of Samuel and Kings, I think they want you to have that, that bias. I think they want you to have this kind of um, dismissive kind of attitude towards Solomon being this great hero that Chronicles presents him as. Right. And so... um that there's also the question, too, of if the time was doubled, was the, um, was the, uh, size? No, um, well, not so. We got the dimensions. Oh, that's true. Um, that's yeah, true. But it, it was the, um, was the cost and the money and, you know, ah. was the expense doubled? So that's another question. And the writer has made it very convenient in order to, to ask this question because he put all of the numbers together for us. He put them right here side by side, where if he had waited until chapter 9 or chapter 10 to go over Solomon's temple, we wouldn't be able to just look at the same page and you know, go, oh, oh, I see. And if you've got a scroll 
and you're, you know, rolling and unrolling, it's going to be even more inconvenient to try to compare the size and the number and all of these things that are being put out there. It's, it's only whenever we have them together that it becomes something that's, that's really, um, that, that allows us to see, to compare and contrast. That's what I'm trying to, to say. And I found it very interesting that in verse one of chapter seven, there's actually this one little word. It's two letters in Hebrew, but uh, we translate it in English as entire. He finished his entire house. So mm-hmm. all, all of the, the furnishings, all of the, the draperies and the rugs and the, you know, the candelabras and all of it was finished where he seems to like build the building for the temple. And then he turns around and he, he pauses to build his own place. And then he goes back and furnishes the temple. And mm-hmm. so it, it, the placement kind of suggests that he paused what he was doing for God to bring more glory to himself. Mm-hmm. And so that's one of the issues that we have with Solomon as he's presented within the book of Kings. He is not somebody who is um, without his vanity. Uh, which is fitting, given uh, what he says in Ecclesiastes. So, verse 2, he built in the house of the forest of Lebanon. So, he, so this is the title of the house. He built the house of the forest of Lebanon. Um, obviously, this means that he uses cedars from Lebanon, that he used the same kind of uh, wood that was used in the temple. Mm-hmm. So he's treating himself, on, at least on this aspect, as well as he's treating God. Then um, it says its length was 100 cubits and its breadth was 50 cubits and its height was 30 cubits. So the temple measures 60 cubits in length. So that's 40 cubits different. Um, the breadth of the temple is only 20 where it's 30. Uh, there's 30 cubits different with the palace and the height is 30. So they're both the same height. So Solomon's palace is larger than the temple. And the writer wants you to let that sink in. Um, and this is just the primary structure. This is not, this doesn't include the other buildings that he is going to add to this. Mm-hmm. So the, the, the palace, by comparison, is pretty massive when compared to the um, temple. So in verse 2, we're told about the abundance of cedar beams used in the structure, and there's enough ambiguity to kind of make the precise nature and form of the structure uh, a matter of debate. And whatever the, the final form is, I don't think that's really what the important part is. Whatever the final form is, it, it's an impressive undertaking with a lot of these cedars, which we've already discussed. They're hard to get. They're hard to harvest. They're hard to get to Israel. They're expensive. They require a major workforce. And mm. so this was an ongoing endeavor that took a lot of manpower, a lot of money to make it happen. And mm. We also need to remember these are also the trees that God himself is said to have planted. So verse three, more cedars. Verse four, we have an amazing number of windows, um, which has led to led us to speculate that this was kind of his his summer home, his his um his summer palace that he went there to kind of recuperate whenever um, you know, it was getting hot in Jerusalem. So it was very much um, a building that was designed for the comfort of the king 
and meant to make sure that the king looked good to visiting foreign dignitaries. And honestly, I'm just going to say, that's where I run out of notes. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's been a crazy week, and I meant to work on them, you know, get some more pages in before tomorrow, today, but... Well, it's all right. I mean, we we generally run long, so, you know, we can run short every now and again, but... Yeah, so... I. I find Sorry, it, I wasn't able to stretch them. I, I sometimes I have more to say. I'm no, I'm just beat this week. I tried. I, I like you know. I I goaded you. I, I <laughs> mm-hmm. baiting the witness. No. I know. I <laughs> led you right up to it, and you just wouldn't take the bait. And so, but yeah, we're gonna get some more into to this uh, later because um, there's not a whole lot. I honestly, I don't find Solomon's Palace all that exciting. Um. It, it it is what it is. Uh, I think that the only reason why there's any interest to it at all is to con- contrast it with what he put into the temple. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I I I find it to be kind of interesting that um, a lot of time is spent on looking at Solomon's building projects because we're also going to see that he, he there's just this overlap of material. I think the only thing that he doesn't use as much of in his palace that he used in the temple was the gold itself. And so... Fair enough. Yeah. I, I guess he thought that was a little extravagant. Imagine that. So, um, <laughs> anyway, yeah, that's, that's all I got. <laughs> okay. Well, no, I mean, we'll, we'll take a look at next week and see what happens. And I'm sure our, you know, everyone who's been listening, I'm sure they're, they're very patient with us by now. But. Anyway. Oh yeah, absolutely. Very much appreciated too. <laughs> so. Well, anyway, before we uh, go on too much about that, everyone, thank you for joining us, and we will see you next week. If you want to be part of the conversation, have some stuff to add to it. Uh, Raven Creek SC on the social media is where you can find us, and RavenCreekSC.com is where you can find us and other Raven Creek Social Club programs. Um, brought to you by other fantastic podcasters who are <laughs> mostly more organized than we are. So anyway, but um. <laughs> Everyone have a good week. We'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, a Raven Creek Social Club production. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on iTunes or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash ravencreeksc. As always, thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next week.